Thank you, John, and Forever Blessed for bringing us into the time of the sermon so well. Are you all praying for me? All right. You all praying for me? Okay. This one was tough, friends, this sermon. This was one of those uh, sermons that makes the truism true that the hardest thing about preaching to you all is that they have to be preached to us preachers all week long on the way to this moment. Had to decide this week yet again what I believe. What I believe about Christ on the cross. In this milieu in which we find ourselves, in this Houston town, in this mean old world, what do I believe? As the Apostle Paul went deeper with the Christians at Corinth, pushing them in his letters to end their divisions and to work together for the cause of Christ, he apparently heard back a great many reasons why the Corinthian Christians were cautious about taking his advice. Those who had been trained in the Greek way of thought valued education and empirical evidence that something was going to work before they would step out in true belief. No matter how scholarly and reasonable Paul's argument, the Greeks in the crowd always seemed it, <laughs> seemed it. They, I don't sound very educated myself. <laughs> the Greeks in the audience always seemed to want one more term paper that would describe just exactly how things were going to work before they could believe in it. They wanted a road map. They wanted a plan. Others had been raised by Jewish parents who had been faithfully taught that the stories from all of history and Jewish history, God had intervened to save Israel with mighty acts and miraculous outcomes. Those folks were hesitant to follow what Paul was teaching because they hadn't seen any signs. They wanted signs that God was as present with them in their day as God had been with the ancient Israelites. The Jewish sojourners in Corinth, one of whom was Paul himself from time to time, found it hard to give heart and soul and time and treasure to a circus with no flying trapeze. They wanted to see something happening, right, in order to believe. They wanted to believe, but they wanted a supernatural sign that would assure them of the outcome of their efforts before they would give themselves over completely to faith. And whether Greek or Jewish, all of Paul's listeners in Corinth seemed to have trouble with the cross. They all seem to have trouble with the cross. Well, I don't blame them for that, do you? It can get hard to get behind the idea of an instrument of torture and death as a sign of hope. It must have been for the Christians at Corinth, too. Paul insinuates that most of the believers there were poor people or those who had been poor. 
And since justice wasn't any uh, more blind in those days than it is today, I suspect that a lot of the people in that Corinthian church knew folks, family members and friends and neighbors who had died on crosses, justice being what it usually is for poor people versus those who are rich. In that time, when most people believed in multiple gods, the issue of what to do with the cross was a profound one. What god would subject God's self to torture and death? Well, Paul said, our God would. Our God is different, not like the others that you've heard described. Our God is capable of great wisdom, in fact, is the source of all wisdom, and is capable of showing you any sign you might want to see was in fact the power behind the signs of old. But our God has a special power, unlike any other. Our God has the power to take on torture and pain, humiliation, even death, and rise victorious. Say, what? This is new. This is new. This was new to the Corinthians, and friends, it's new to us. This is new. Suffering and vulnerability are means of reconciliation and redemption. Do you mean, Harry, to tell me that embarrassment and hurt feelings might be stepping stones to true community? That vulnerability may be the way to reconciliation and healing? That pain and death are part of the journey to abundant, everlasting life? Yes. For many years, I carried a great deal of guilt over how I treated a man that I used to be married to. Now, I'm about to break the, I think, maybe primary rule of preaching. I'm going to tell you a story about myself. You already broke it. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you, dear. You, 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 you blazed the way for us. For many years, I carried a lot of guilt about the way that I treated a man I used to be married to. He was a good man. And I was a good man, too, when I was married to him, but I was also severely and chronically depressed. These were back in the bad old days of the 1980s, when I had just recently learned that I am HIV positive, when I was being denied ordination because I'm gay in another denomination. Uh, life was hard for me in those days. But my hard times were not, should not have been a reason to be ugly to Cliff. But I was. He bore the brunt of my depression and pain. And finally, when he decided that I was on the brink of causing myself great harm, he coordinated an intervention 
and got me put in the hospital and got me the psychotherapy that I badly needed. And it saved my life. It saved my life. I am a completely different person today than I was roughly 20 or more years ago. Because he cared enough about me to go through that experience with me and he stayed with me through the process and got me safe. And then he left me. And that was a reasonable thing for him to do. Because I was no longer psychologically safe space for him to occupy. He didn't know if I was going to get better or not. And he needed, for his own safety's sake, mental safety, to have some distance between us. And the distance over the years grew to be pretty considerable. The miles, I moved to another city, and the years mounted up, and we just were not in touch. And I carried guilt through that time for how I knew I had treated him. And I wanted to be reconciled to him. But I just couldn't find quite the, the way to do it. Finally, uh, mutual friends gave us an opportunity to be reconnected. And I wrote a letter that I had wanted a long time to write. I wrote it about six times before I finally got down to the version that I mailed. And in it, I sought to give a true apology. Not all the excuses for why I had acted like I'd acted, you know, kind of exonerated me with you all when I told you what I was going through, right? But he knew what I'd gone through. I didn't need to repeat that. What I needed to say to my wonderful friend was, I'm sorry. I try not to act that way anymore. Thank you for helping to save my life. And yet again, I'm sorry. So I mailed that letter. And I'd like to tell you that when I put it in the mailbox, I felt relief and elation. But I didn't. What I felt was vulnerable in a whole new way. I felt my heart constrict and my face get red it felt a little like dying as I put that letter in the mailbox. Felt a little like dying. Bless his heart, Cliff let me lay in the grave a while. <laughs> he didn't write back. He didn't write back. Some some hurts go deep. And it was his right not to do so. But a few months later, we were surprised to see each other at a meeting. Neither of us knew the other one was going to be there. And when I saw him across the room, he jumped up and he ran to hug my neck. And he invited me to come and sit with him and a bunch of our formerly mutual friends introduced me to new folks in the room that I didn't know. And we began the healing process that over the last five years or so has turned back into a really solid friendship built on mutual respect. 
true community requires us to risk looking foolish, to risk being rejected, to risk losing the very thing that we seek. My story could have turned out differently. You all have written some of those same letters and you haven't gotten a nice response, am I right? So am I. So have I. But I think those letters are worth the risk. I think they're worth the risk. For every time they work. All we are responsible for is taking the risk. We're not responsible for the response of the other person. We can only do our part. My mother, here's my second story that I'm not supposed to tell. You're not supposed to talk about yourself in a sermon, not supposed to talk about your family. <laughs> my mother was once a school board member in rural South Georgia in the 1970s in Crisp County, Georgia, where I grew up. And while she was on the school board, a member of the board had to leave the board because his job moved him out of town. And so there was a vacancy on the Board of Education. And so my mother saw an opportunity and she took it. She got in the car and she drove to Atlanta to the state capitol and she knocked on the door of the governor of the state of Georgia. As if you can do that sort of thing. And if you're my mother, you can. And they said, oh, well, Miss Sandra, thank you for coming, but the governor's busy and he's got a full day and all of that. And she said, oh, I'm sure he'll see me. And they said, well, no, ma'am, really, he can't. And she said, well, I bet he will. I'll just wait. And she sat outside the door. So finally, they found five minutes for her to come in and be seen by the governor. And in that five minutes, she said, Governor Busby, um, you know there's a vacancy on the school board in Crisp County. Yes, ma'am, I do. She said, um, it occurred to me the other day that 70% of the school children in Crisp County are black. We didn't have African American in our mouths back in those days, not at our house. 70% of the school children in, in our county are black, and it just seems to me that we ought to have at least one school board member that represents the African American people in our community. And the governor looked at her and said, Sandra, that would be political suicide for me in Crisp County, and it'll be political suicide for you. I'm not going to do that. And she said, oh, sure you can do this. She said, I have pre-recruited Dr. Ernest Rivers. He's a PhD in education theory, and he is ready to serve. And he said, Sandra, you didn't hear me. That would be political suicide for me in Crisp County and for you. We're not going to do that. And she said, Governor, why don't you just do it and then blame it on me? What do you mean? Oh, yeah. She said, just, just tell people that I came up here and made a stink and promised to make a bigger one. They'll all believe you that I would do such a thing. You know, just say whatever you need to say. Blame it on me. He said, you don't mind if I do that? She said, no, I don't care. So he did. He appointed Dr. Rivers who, of course, two years later was the chair of the board because, tra-la, he was the only one who knew anything about education theory out of the whole bunch of them. 
and was re-elected in his own right. And now routinely in that South Georgia County, African-American people are elected in about the numbers that they were represented in the community to serve in leadership in the community. Now, Mama was successful in that endeavor because she was willing to commit political suicide. She was willing to have her own little bit of prestige die away in order to find a more abundant life for her children and all of the rest of the children in Crisp County, Georgia. That's a risk worth taking. That's the kind of house I grew up in, so it won't surprise you when I call on you to let's go march on the Capitol, right? That story, too, turned out well. But it might not have. The governor could have done the wrong thing. And my mother just could have looked very, very foolish. Things don't always work out. Not in the moment. Not as we hope or plan. As the regime in Uganda has become increasingly repressive... Conservative Christian leaders in the United States have been quick to export to Ugandan leaders a commodity they have found to be very valuable. Homophobia has become a tool of a government not able to deal with issues of poverty and disease and lack of education and lack of infrastructure. Homophobia is used to distract the majority of the people, to focus their hatred away from the government and on a tiny, despised minority. David Cato has been one of the few out gay leaders in Uganda during a time of great terror over the last 18 months or so. Even when his picture and his name were printed in newspapers under headlines that read, Hang them! His name and address in the paper. Hang them! He continued his work for justice. We had a moment like that this week. Television cameras came and focused themselves on Resurrection Church's logo. We were out there in the city. Made me wonder what would happen. David showed me the way. In spite of all the threats that were hurled at him. He stayed faithful. And for his trouble this week, he was beaten to death in his own home. He has become a martyr for justice. For LGBTQ folk in Uganda, Good Friday has come early. Our sisters and brothers there and throughout East Africa are wandering through what must seem like an endless dark Saturday with no Easter in sight. Sometimes things don't turn out okay. It's precisely for those moments that Paul reminds us that we do not worship a faceless idol called wisdom. 
We need a God who is powerful when our education and best laid plans don't work out. We don't worship a fickle Baal called prosperity. There are people in this town who do. We are not among them. We don't look for signs in our checkbooks and in our driveways. We don't look for toys and call them blessings. Not at Resurrection Church. We worship Christ. And we worship Christ crucified. Not, not had been crucified, not will be crucified. We don't hope that my... Uh -uh, is now, was forever, and forevermore shall be crucified. In dark days of torment, I can worship no other. In these days of doubt and fear, I need a God who I know has been there. Has faced the taunts and the threats, the slashes and the blows. My God didn't sit on a throne in glory and passively watch while we slaughtered each other below. My God was crucified. He looked awfully foolish up there on the cross. But he was never more divine. He looked beaten and defeated. But he was by his divine power redefining vulnerability and death. Because Jesus died on that cross, David Cato is in heaven today. Because Jesus died on that cross, <laughs> Otto Koch is in heaven today. Because Jesus died on that cross, so will you and I one day be in heaven. That gives me all the power I need to know. I have. As we walk out those back doors on a Sunday afternoon into a world of sin. Confident. That whatever the world throws at us, it's nothing Christ hasn't been through before. We go, accompanied on the journey, by Christ and Him crucified.